Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill. 22 years ago, director Clint Eastwood introduced audiences to that rare contradiction in terms, an instant classic, when he unleashed the Western Unforgiven onto the world's movie screens. It was a film that both looked back to all that the Western had represented in earlier decades and pointed forward to new directions for the genre. It also marked a high point in the collaboration between Eastwood and cinematographer Jack Green ASC, who was honored with an Academy Award nomination for his work on the picture. Green, also the recipient of an ASC Lifetime Achievement Award, worked with Eastwood in various capacities on over 20 films. He's also known for his work on Twister, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Girl Interrupted, and Serenity, among many other movies. In Unforgiven, aging killer William Money decides to come out of retirement for one last job, that of assassinating a pair of ranch hands responsible for mutilating a prostitute. Money is joined by an old friend and a new apprentice, and all three think they're taking on a simple job but end up scarred by violence. Along the way, they cross paths with a sadistic sheriff and a dime novelist, characters screenwriter David Webb Peoples uses to examine the mythology of the West in a story that forces the audience to examine its own relationship to violence, vengeance, and the law. Green finds the perfect visual analog to the film's complex moral view in his imagery, which alternates between gorgeous landscape photography that romanticizes the West and noir-like shadows that engulf the characters in the interiors. Containing both claustrophobia and expansiveness, it's a style Green and Eastwood developed in earlier collaborations like Heartbreak Ridge and White Hunter Black Heart, but which finds its greatest expressiveness in Unforgiven. I'm thrilled to have Jack here today to talk about his work on the film. So, Jack, before we talk about Unforgiven, I was actually wondering if you give me a little bit of background on uh, how you first came to work with Clint Eastwood. What what movie did you first work on, and how did you meet him? Uh, in 1970, he was directing his first film called Play Misty, and I showed up to work as a camera assistant on some aerial photography that took one or two days. Um, we Don Morgan was the cameraman on that one, and we flew into uh, Carmel, did our work there, and and left. And that was the very first movie that I worked on, which was a very short period of time. And then um, I was working for Tyler Camera Systems at the time, so I would go out on jobs that were aerial photography as a camera assistant. I did work ground work on, on regular jobs as well, commercials, industrials, a lot of other things. But I got a chance to... Uh, to work for Tyler Camera Systems, and that was when I first worked on a picture that Clint was a part of. And then um, a year or two later, I uh, worked on a picture called Dirty Harry. Again, aerial photography, one or two days, very short, in and out, as a camera assistant again. And years later, that cameraman, Rex Metz, was asked to photograph the gauntlet for Clint. I was invited to be a B camera operator. By that time, I'd moved up to camera operator. I Worked on that for, I think, five weeks in Las Vegas and, and around Las Vegas. That was my first face-to-face -face introduction to Clint Eastwood. And we enjoyed working together. And, and uh, Rex and I it, uh, had been friends for a long time. And, and this wasn't just aerial photography. This was the whole kit and caboodle. The next picture that 
Clint was getting ready to do was every which way but loose. Again, I was invited to be the camera operator, but this time to be the A camera operator. From then on, it was like a complete marriage. We always got invited back. Uh, Rex Metz decided he had other work that he wanted to do, but then I got invited back to be the camera operator in every picture that he did after that, except for In the Line of Fire. That was Clint being uh, an actor, not being able to choose his crew. So um, that that was kind of it. Uh, every which way but loose, any which way you can. For Uncle Billy, Honky Tonk Man, just a whole list of uh, films that we did back to back. And we always saw the filmmaking process kind of in a, we shared that our love of filmmaking, but we also knew that that filmmaking was only one aspect of the life. And I really admired Clint and his way that he uh, dealt with uh, the crew and the cast and everybody else. And he was always so um, genuine. So we got along into correct your data, two films as a camera assistant, 14 films as a camera operator for him, and then 14 films as a director of photography, one of which was a documentary. So what led to you making the jump from being an operator to his director of photography? Well, when he was getting ready to do Honky Tonk Man, he'd asked me if I wanted to move up to director of photography. And um, at that time, I was not I was pretty darn insecure about moving up. So I said, please forgive me, but I, I'm, I don't feel I'm as qualified as I should be for this. And he let me step down or step out of that and didn't press the issue. He did keep me on as his camera operator and we continued on. And then, then he was getting ready to do Heartbreak Ridge. He invited me again. By this time, I'd gotten a little bit more secure. I'd done a little bit of prep work in my in my mind where I wanted to find my own imagery, and uh, my wife played a, an enormous part in that. In that, when she knew that I I was considering, and and knew that Clint was considering inviting me to be the director of photography, she went out and bought uh, and got from the library wonderful art books, all famous art artists from his. And I sort of identified with and, and became close to in, in identifying with what my brain imagery was with how to implement it into, um, into films. And I, I really identified with the Flemish artists, obviously, Rembrandt and Van Dyke and a, a bunch of the Flemish artists that had this naturalistic look, uh, but it was very contrasty. And sort of that, carrying that with me, I, I tried to implement that wherever I could. And then it, where it came to a, um, a real focus was on Unforgiven. Um, and I was able to apply a lot of that um, imagery that had been read about and studied in those books that my wife brought home for me to, to get uh, involved in. I think if you were to say anyone influenced me more than anyone else, it was 
Rembrandt and the and other Flemish artists that that uh, did that kind of art. Well, the uh, the script for Unforgiven had been around since the mid seventies, and Clint got a hold of it, I think, somewhere around nineteen eighty five. But he didn't make it until the nineteen nineties. Um, when did you first become aware of it? Had he told you about the script earlier, or did you not find out about it until you were ready to shoot? What was your memory of first becoming aware of Unforgiven as a project you would do with him? Well, the um, Clint doesn't talk a lot about things like that, uh, but I did through our family, when I say family, the, the Eastwood family network, I knew that he had gotten the script and was working on it at the same time, waiting for himself to get a little older. And I knew that this was in his on his list of films that he wanted to do. I didn't at, at all think that, uh, or know I, if he was going to invite a, a different cinematographer in for something that, that I knew that he held so close to his heart and, and, uh, and wanted it to be really, really special. And, um, when going back here, I'm going to drop back to, um, bird when he went, that was the, my third film as a director of photography, my second film as uh, for Clint on Bird, he invited me into his room to talk about Bird. Uh, and on that, sh- on his uh, script shelf, I did see Unforgiven sitting there. Uh, it had moved into a pretty close position, but Bird, he and he said, I have an idea about how I want Bird to look. And I, I told him that uh, I had an idea for Bird that I would like to just shoot a test to demonstrate what my idea was and to, to, to find, and then we could either use that idea or use, or use it as a template uh, or, or just use it as something to, um, to use as a reference. So um, I shot this uh, test with Forrest Whitaker and a saxophone in uh, the sound, yeah, sound recording room at uh, Warner Brothers. And uh, just threw a little light, very little, on him, just an edge of light, and a little tiny bit of bounce into the into the saxophone, just so it popped a little bit. And uh, when we looked at dailies the next day, he elbowed me, and, and he said, "That's it. That's the look we want." So that one succeeded pretty well in terms of uh, satisfying my growth as a cinematographer, and and if you will. Had actually satisfied that that idea of um, being able to make images as I had imagined them out of the Flemish painting. So um, when Unforgiven came about, there was almost no real discussion. He invited me to do it. Uh, I had um, gotten wind that he had been scouting around in um, different places uh arizona he'd looked in idaho he'd looked in in different places and uh, i had just in between clint pictures and other work i'd i'd just finished doing a commercial up in in the calgary area high river to be exact where we ended up shooting and when clint said um that he was looking for a, a specific location uh, i talked to david valdez and we decided to uh, take a flight up to uh, canada and scout um, from BC, Vancouver, all the way over as far as we could go and ended up scouting half a dozen locations and uh, with helicopter scouts and all of that. And finally found, got to where I had absolutely thought that the picture ought to be photographed. 
We landed on a DNR scout with David Valdez. We landed on a little Fulton, like a little knob. And uh, in the background was Banff and not this beautiful scenery. And uh, he, David, agreed with me almost instantly that we ought to go back and tell Clint that we had found a really idealistic or ideal uh, for the picture. So I um, got back. We got back there. David went in and talked to Clint. Uh, they We arranged uh, a few days later to have a big scout group with uh, Henry Bumstead and and, uh, and as he was a production designer. And we all flew up to uh, Canada, got in helicopters, scouted this area, landed on the little knob. I can't remember if it was the exact same one that we had, that David and I had landed on, but he, it was one that he had picked out and liked. And um, uh, he says, okay, this is a good location. Let's go for it. So he said to Henry Bumstead, he says, how do you think... Uh, Big Whiskey ought to be oriented in the street, ought to be oriented. And Henry Bumps said to Clint, any way you want, Mr. Eastwood. <laughs> and Bummy had, was so, he was so good. He was so wonderful. We uh, there went from uh, in the design of the, uh, the sets and everything. Henry Bumps had included me in every aspect of it. And um, we agreed that the city ought to be made with all all practical buildings so that we could store the company in, in all of the different buildings. So we would minimize the, uh, the footprint of the, the circus. Uh, and uh, so the circus would be down, down below big whiskey behind a, a big sort of uh, more than a hedge, but a big knoll. So it was on the other side and, Part of what uh, I had asked is that once everybody gets their equipment in there, that we never allow uh, wheeled equipment back in and that only uh, horse-drawn carts and horseback and uh, um, people on foot should go into the city after we move, all moved in, which is what, the, what we did. And we never had to scrape the ground to remove tires prints again uh which was made me feel really good because and everybody everybody got into it because they got to ride horses up to the set or buckboard or uh, dirt wagons or uh, into onto the set it was great fun and everybody uh, actually enjoyed the fact that they had to ride to the set on horseback or in carts well, and in terms of work, in terms of working with Henry Bumstead, um, I was I wanted to ask about that and how it how you worked with him to decide on the lighting because I know that on some of your urban action films and things like that with Eastwood, you relied on practicals a lot. And I'm wondering if that's still the case when you're doing a, a period film like Unforgiven. Do you work with the production designer to find ways of creating practicals and you know in the sets that you know you're going to be able to use? Absolutely. Um, that's a it's a fun story to tell because Henry is again so such a collaborator and and he cooperates and tries to do whatever he can. I'd ask him to find kerosene lamps with the biggest wick that he could find, and he found I think four or five of these uh, uh, wicked kerosene lamps that were about five inches. The wick was about five inches in diameter, so it made a huge flame. We put those around 
the interior of uh, Greeley's. And um, and Tom Stern and I would go in in between at the end of our day of shooting in Big Whiskey. We would go into um, Greeley's and and sit in the dark and let our eyes dark adapt until these can these uh, big wick kerosene lamps were doing the only lighting. And so we would just he and I would sit in there and imagine that we'd bring in a couple people and have them walk around in the environment. So we got an idea of how it would have felt if you actually lived in that environment. Then we tried to duplicate it with big lamps. Uh, we had to have uh, three or four uh, 5K tungsten 5K lamps, and we had to hide them up in, in the set ceiling and let that duplicate the, the look of the, the light. And then we put a few other lamps around where we knew uh, it was pretty obvious to have um, smaller units around, and so we would hide a couple of other smaller tungsten lamps as well. And um, we that was our that was how we approached the lighting there. And um, of course, we had a, a little uh, moonlight coming in through uh, a couple of the bigger windows. So whenever we were in Greeley's or the look of Greeley's, it was pretty well established that it that it was going to look as close to as we could recreate anyway uh, a kerosene lit environment. And in terms of the exteriors, how does the location of, and the light of the location affect uh, the look of the movie? And how much are you trying to how much are you trying to manipulate what's there, and how much are you just trying to work with and respond to what's already there? Yeah. The, we were determined to use natural uh, daylight, not uh, supplemented or augmented much at all. Our scenes were going to be as natural daylight lit as possible. So what we got into the into the procedure of doing is shooting out um, the, our day's work in town until about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon and then hurry out into the uh, later light of the day and shoot half a dozen shots as sun was coming along. So we got a lot of bang for our buck out of natural light and sun, real sunset late. You know, every cinematographer wants to should be shooting only either in the first couple of hours of morning or the last couple of hours of, of evening. At light because that's that is the, the the featured golden light of and it makes every film look that much better. But Clinton, we worked out a schedule with our first assistant director that we worked it out so we could break from whatever we were doing and and we had a, our cameras all ready to just move like crazy and get as much as we could get in the hour and a half or so of daylight that was left. The, uh, the use of color in the movie is really extraordinary as well. There's so many, you know, there's the, the great kind of oranges and browns, but then you've also got these, uh, you know, very striking sort of white and blue snow scenes and all kinds of other stuff. And, and I was wondering how much of the palette was planned out ahead of time and with, you know, Clint and with Henry Bumstead and how much of it was you responding to what you found once you got to location and what, what your thinking was in terms of the use of color in the movie. The, um, the wardrobe, of course, uh, it was, I only had one priority and, and that is that we didn't have 
a lot of white things that we would shoot in the in the evening. That most of it had to be dark gray or darker tones uh, because the white would just make it really hard. Uh, otherwise, uh, wardrobe just uh, designed their clothing the way they uh, and I, they would show me things if it if it looked like it was bordering on. Uh, too light or too dark or something like that. So we kept the tones uh, enjoyable there. Um, and as far as the town goes, we wanted to have a sort of a muted color swatch, if you will. So as we were, as Henry was designing it, and he would invite me in and I would go in on my own time or at, certainly during prep later on, he would invite me in and uh, show me different things uh, that he was planning, and and we would discuss the tonality of the of where we wanted to be with this this whole project. So I got involved. Henry Bumstead was absolutely wonderful, including me on all of the decision making processes, and then um, Wardrobe was wonderful about inviting me in to be help suggest or to try and avoid or whatever we could do to help the the uh, color. But we, I, I wanted Big Picture to have a an almost sepia, but naturally created sepia look so that it would have an older um, look to it right from the get-go. And I wanted contrast because um, the contrast could help create the muted tones. And it was um, just phenomenal how all of all of our planning and everything fit so well that the pleasure of shooting had, uh, before and after had never been equaled. You talked a little bit about the influence of Flemish painters on the movie and on your career as a whole. And I was wondering, were there any other visual references that you had? Were you thinking at all about other Westerns that had come before and wanting to do things similar to, to those or react against those or... Uh, or were your influences purely from the world of painting? No, definitely. The the, um, the painters only helped a little bit in terms of um, the t- tonality. They, the composition, um, I, I took a lot of Western education. I, I put myself sort of into a research mode, and I saw, uh, I watched The Searchers a couple of times. I watched Butch Cassidy a couple of times. Fistful of Dollars, Good, Bad, and Ugly. I watched this sort of like top 25 films of Westerns to, to get ideas about how Westerns work with their composition and how that separated the Western from so many other genres. So I, I sort of put my school my, myself to school doing the research on, on the best choices possible for composition. Then, of course, having that location was um, quite a bit of help. And then we had um, Clint uh, insisted, and of course I did too, that we shoot it in scope, anamorphic scope. So we had a, the big wide screen imagery and it was just it was it fits so well the landscape and the, and the quality that we were striking out for yeah well i was actually wondering if you could elaborate a little bit upon 
the choice of uh, the anamorphic wide frame because something I find interesting about your films with Eastwood is that you you go back and forth like some directors and some cinematographers clearly favor one aspect ratio over another and with you and Eastwood you've got some films that are 185 like Heartbreak Ridge and are very clearly designed for that and then you've got some like The Rookie and Unforgiven that are uh, very clearly designed for the wider frame and and I was wondering what what factors go into making that decision for, for any given film? I mean, what, what, what do you take into account when deciding what your aspect ratio is going to be? Well, the, the story content is absolutely dictates the, uh, and of course, Clint and his opinion, but the, the typically I'll talk to him directly about if it's a intimate, small story, if it's about character studies, if it's about the little, not grand scope of things type of films, uh, we will favor 185 just because it, it doesn't seem to require the scope. I'm double entendring that word because the scope does describe the composition in terms of um, the ground glass you use or the, the projected image is going to be scope. But it, But what you... What you try to do is match the the story to the uh, format, and the format was, uh, of course, in Unforgiven. There was no way it wasn't going to be scope because it was so what's such a almost a classic western even before it came out of the off the script off the page. It was just it had to be scope, and uh, other films just don't say don't yell out at you that that's got to be scope. So I think that's pretty much our choices. Well, Unforgiven has a lot of interesting contrasts with the film that you and Eastwood made before it, which was The Rookie. Um, great movie. I watched that again last night, and it's a contemporary cop film that's got a very freewheeling style, lots of steady cam and you know handheld work, a very sort of fluid frame. And Unforgiven is dynamic too, but I feel like the compositions are a little bit more restrained and precise and classical. And I was wondering if you and Eastwood were consciously out to go in a different direction than you had on the previous movie, or is it just simply a matter of finding the right style for this particular piece of material? I mean, are you guys, when you guys go from one movie to another, are you thinking to yourselves, oh, we want to try something different than we've done before, or do you not really think in those those terms? Uh, again, the, the, among the things that generate a uh, camera style, whether it's a handheld, primarily handheld, or primarily steady cam, or primarily any sort of um, opinion, the, 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 the script pages have to sort of dictate the opinion that you have. And um, if the writer doesn't actually put scene descriptions into the written word, just reading the descriptions or the, reading the storytelling kind of dictate, at least to Clint and myself, and we have very similar designs when we when we read something like this and that pretty much dictates how the if it's an action movie you want the camera to be in the act and you want it to be moving and you want it to be part of uh, the almost not not first person certainly but a very very close second person uh, imagery where you're you're almost somebody sitting at a table and and watching these people have this have their conversations around the table or doing what they're doing while they're running and or moving fast or whatever 
so a lot of that is dictated by the words, but in Unforgiven, both Clint and I wanted the film to be very, very uh, proscenium-oriented in that the camera was a actual, actually just setting a stage, and you're, you're witnessing a grand scale picture when you watch the imagery. And that was our intent, and I, we did accomplish it. And I, I was amazed at how easily it fit not just our locations that we chose, but our camera style and everything sort of fit the Western in a cliche, perfect way. And in terms of the, the compositions, how much planning goes ahead? goes into those ahead of time? Do you and Eastwood storyboard or shot list or are you responding to what the actors do on the day or is it some combination of of all those things well we clint is not a storyboard person he's never ever wanted to have storyboards he is he's a gut shooter um he he likes to take very spontaneous reaction to every event so even though we we know what our locations are, we scout our locations. I kind of envision my own idea of of what how Clint will perceive uh, the work at this particular set or or location. We pretty much go by a um, instinctual uh, application of what feels good on the day. And in terms of direct, you know, this something that occurred to me the other day revisiting the film is that. It must be a little bit unusual to be the cinematographer on a film where the director is also one of the stars. And I'm wondering if Eastwood works with you in a way that's different from the way other directors work with you because he can't be behind the camera observing what he's doing when he's in the frame acting. I mean, does he uh, does he have to rely on you in different ways because of that? Or does that does that change the director cinematographer dynamic at all? Yeah, that's a fun question to answer, because it's an absolutely enormous thrill to be included in the not editing process, but the process of deciding whether a actor did his job while Clint is unable to either focus on him, maybe he's facing away or he's watching other things. For 14 pictures as his camera operator, we got into a sort of a a style where he would look at me and we never wanted the actors to feel that they were responsible for a, a retake. Clint's one that never likes to shoot a second take. Um, as a matter of fact, you really shoot the rehearsals, um, in the master, everything is just the first time the actors are doing it is the first time the camera is seeing it. And you get a, almost like a edge of your seat feeling when you're, when you're doing these things for him. You, as a camera operator, you're, you're, you're such a close part of of how that is reported to the director. It was fun to be the camera operator that reported directly to the director about how that particular scene worked. And and I would get back to that part about act. We always had this little sort of, if I thought that a an actor was having a, a tough time with either his skills or either acting skills or his word skills or his presentation skills, I would say, uh, Clint, I think we got a hair in the gate on that one. Um, you might want to, you might want to have to, you might want to do it again. And he would know instantly 
that uh, we were protecting somebody and, and we've never let them know. And, and for the most part, that went on for every picture that I worked on, including after I became director of photography and we had more responsibility in terms of, of the, the lighting and, and framing and less of the true composition and the, and working in the eyepiece with the actors. Clint never used um, playback. He never used a monitor to do anything. Even, even when he was a director and, and, um, and actor in a movie, he, just, he just relied on his instinctual ear. He had a great ear for listening to actors and their and their truths and 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 their abilities as, and their skills. He would just hear them and and he, and he would know. And if and the only time I would ever speak up is if I knew that it was something that he was unable to observe or or was about to let something go that shouldn't be let go. And then uh, then I would mentioning the hair in the gate or the flare in the lens or something to, to make sure that the actors got a, a better chance. Well, you know, and Eastwood acting in this particular movie, I mean, there's so much kind of cultural and cinematic significance that comes anytime you put Clint Eastwood on screen in a cowboy hat. And uh, were you conscious of that? Like while you're actually on set making this this movie with him, I mean, is it just another job or are you thinking about the fact that this is sort of, you know, a, the next step in film history in a way, in a kind of evolution of this figure, Clint Eastwood, who, you know, the man with no name and Josie Wales. And, you know, it's sort of the next step in that tradition. I was absolutely aware of every aspect of how, at least how he and I considered it. We we felt that we were definitely making a, a film for the ages. We definitely felt that we were making a, a personal statement, each of us, in our, in our, not just our careers, but in our personal life, how we felt about these issues and, and why we choose the compositions we choose and the different things we do. And, um, you know, it's such a, a pleasure to, to know that you're actually working on something that is going to set the benchmark for Westerns that are going to come after it. And the fact that it was chosen to be put into the Library of Congress and other things just complemented the fact that, and or agreed with the idea that we knew we were working on a, um, a classic, not just in Western statements, but in film statements about what life is about when you, when you find the good things in bad people and you find the bad things in good people and trying not to choose sides in a in an overt way i you know it's just it, it's just so much every day every single day was joy 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 were there i mean it sounds like it was just you know a charmed shoot and and one of the great experiences of your your life were there any were there any unforeseen challenges that came up while you were shooting you know do you have any memories of anything uh that was that was you know, difficult or that you weren't able to achieve that you wanted to achieve? Well, the only thing like that that, that came up, well, there were two things. Early on, we found out that we were using, this is sort of detail, but it, we were using um, anamorphic, uh, primo anamorphics, and we we found uh, that I wasn't, I wasn't having a good time looking at the imagery 
um, from the primo anamorphic. So we switched back to the older style anamorphic lenses and I got a lot happier. The other thing was we were using behind the lens filters and for some reason we weren't able to come up with enough of the Kodak filters for behind the lens. So we supplemented them with um, Lee filters. We found out that they were because they were thicker than the uh, than the Kodak lens the filters, that they were actually making a lens behind the lens. So they were throwing everything out of focus. So we had a, a bit of a difficult time there figuring out what the actual problem was. And uh, once we figured that out and got through with that, then the next time we ran, and that was early on, of course, that's that's while you're getting your feet wet on the ground uh, for starting off. and then But then later on, when we were getting ready to uh, finish up in Big Whiskey, we actually uh, got a weather report uh, for like 24 hours in advance and found that the, there was a snowstorm coming in and that we would have to shoot every available minute until the snowstorm shut us out of the town we were able to do it and and you can actually um see in the film the the storm menacing us uh while they're on the hilltop uh, i can't remember the kid's name but but uh, he was they were on the hilltop and talking about taking a man's life and um behind clint standing there talking off towards the landscape over his shoulder is this huge storm uh, coming in. We worked all that day and then we worked most of the night that night and uh, finished out the big whiskey exit, which was I'll kill all your children, I'll kill your children's children and everything else. Um, That speech and all of that right out of town, uh, we finished all of that hilltop and all of that ending of the movie in that one day because the next day, uh, it snowed 11 inches, and it didn't come out from snow until spring the next next year. So we um, we got out of town, able to finish all of our work. We had to move one location, which was the bunkhouse location, down to Sonora. But we were going down to Sonora anyway because we had our train stuff to shoot down there. And there was a train there, an old perfect train for us to use it. We shut all of the English Bob stuff, um, you know, when, when he's on the train and everything that goes on there. Uh, so we moved the bunkhouse down there. We didn't, we didn't lose a beat. We shot, we still finished in 42 days on a 55 day shooting schedule, which is the typical Clint Eastwood style. Get, get ahead and stay ahead. Even with having to move that bunkhouse scene down to, down to California, we still finished way ahead of schedule, and it's all part of the, the process that you you shoot short days and short schedules. <laughs> well, you clearly had very big ambitions and expectations for this film. Do you remember the first time you saw it with an audience and what the reaction was like? I mean, did you know right away that you guys had pulled off what you had intended? Uh, yeah. When I first saw it, I was so excited and thrilled that that I couldn't contain my joy for having been a part of that. It was such an immense pleasure to be able to work on 
And, and who knows how many more Westerns were going to be shot. And there weren't many since then, maybe a dozen Westerns since then. And who knows if they're ever going to do Westerns again that that um, reach that epic um, level. But I, I I can't tell you how thrilled I was with, the, with that movie. And uh, I never... It, it exceeded my expectations by by more than I can describe. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today about it. Um, thanks a lot, Jack. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you. And good luck with this. Thanks. This has been Jim Hemphill talking with Jack Green ASC about Unforgiven. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.